This is The Red Line, where we interview three key experts on one huge issue shaping the news both here and overseas. Only 20 kilometres north of Australia lies the tropical island of Guinea. It's roughly the size of Mexico, and it's home to the second largest rainforest on the planet. On any map, you can see the island divided right down the middle. The eastern half of the island belonging to the sovereign nation of Papua New Guinea. And the western half belonging to Indonesia. And it is known to the rest of the world as West Papua. Who are struggling to become an independent nation from an increasingly strict Jakarta government. This is the focus of this week's episode. West Papua, their revolution, and why Indonesia is so desperate to hold on to this far-flung island. Part 1. Every dog has its day. I would describe West Papua as a, a very beautiful country, mostly still exists, of tropical rainforest, and where you see the original inhabitants of this country uh, live as poor citizens in their own land. Rocky Up is a native West Papuan who has risen to become one of the leading voices in the Free West Papua movement. He campaigns to the UN on behalf of West Papuans and has also worked with the Dutch Ministry of the Interior. Well, you immediately recognize the indigenous West Papuans from the skull of the kin, which is mostly uh, very dark uh, compared to other parts of Melanesia, of Papua New Guinea, for example. And when you go to the highlands, these are very dark skinned Papuan, curly hair. Uh, so you will see it uh, immediately, the difference uh, between uh, most of the Indonesian archipelago and the indigenous West Papuans. But we are ethnically, racially and culturally uh, part of the island of Papua New Guinea. And therefore, you know, uh, our, our values, our cultural, you know, way of, of living is very similar to those of the Pacific and Melanesian countries. So you would say you're much closer to someone living in uh, Papua New Guinea or Port Moresby than you are to someone living in Jakarta. It is a fact that we are clearly part of, the, you know, Papua New Guinea. And it's actually one island. And you see a lot of similarities between the indigenous West Papua in the West and in the East. So yes, that's, that's definitely true. So right now, West Papua is in huge revolt. They've got riots and protests. And what I want to know is what kicked all of this off? Is that uh, West Papuan students um, uh, in Surabaya, Jaffa, uh, standing uh, at the dormitory, were yelled by bystanders, uh, uh, joined by Indonesian military and police, yelling at them words like monkeys, dogs, uh, go back to your land. Um, and that was the moment when these footages uh, go on to social media and in the internet. You know, this was the spark of, you know, uh, anger um, among all West Papuans, but you know, this part, this was not just a racist incident as we've seen. You know, for for the people who never heard about West Papua, they could say this is a racist incident. It, it is wrong. Um, so the, the image is very clear. And if you look at the educational and healthcare system, there is not a equal system where West Papuan students can you know can offer a a study or have a good job. And that's, that's, you know, that's a systematic problem. And this is the sentiment of 57 years what we've seen now in West Papua. So can you take us right back and explain why West Papua being so different is actually part of Indonesia? Yes, absolutely. So I will go back a little bit uh, earlier in time, which is 1961. That was the moment that West Papua was still part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. 
And when the on the royal decision, the Netherlands hand over uh, the West Papua Morningstar flag, um, as we know it today, they installed a first New Guinea Council uh, on April 5, 1961, all in preparation of an independent and the right of self-determination for the people of West Papua. But because of huge international pressure a year late in 1962, the Netherlands was forced to, to, to sign this agreement known as the New York Agreement, uh, on, signed on August 15 uh, in the headquarters of the United Nations in New York, 1962. And in that agreement, uh, the Netherlands and Indonesia uh, uh, said that within seven years, there should be a moment that the indigenous West Papuans could have the opportunity to vote whether they want to be part of Indonesia or not. So, and that was the moment we know as the Act of Free Choice. So, what actually happened uh, during the so-called Act of Free Choice, uh, which actually the opposite has happened, because there was not a free choice, because just 1,026 men uh, on, on the entire population of 800,000 indigenous populations were selected uh, and, and threatened on gunpoint uh, with their lives and the lives of their family to vote for uh, integration into Indonesia. So you don't have to be a lawyer nor a scientist to understand that the entire referendum, um, which took place in 1969, uh, didn't went conform international law. And that is the, the root causes uh, of the demands of the indigenous West Papua. We see today, they want a referendum. So who supports West Papua independence? Internationally, do they have friends? But we see a momentum growing in the Pacific region. So I think more and more uh, Pacific nations are supporting our, our, our cause, but also Papua New Guinea, right? It's, it's like the biggest brother in the Pacific island. This is very uh, encouraging, but also in the UK, where we see uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader of the Labour Party, you know, who is openly a supporter of the right of self-determination for West Papua. And also in the Netherlands, we got a lot of MPs who are focusing on the right of self-determination. So we are very optimistic, you know, and because now we got internet and the truth is spreading very rapidly and therefore we see the, we see the support for the right of the indigenous West Papuans growing as well. So with the uprisings becoming larger and larger, how are the Indonesians attempting to contain this? So they, after this, this, I think the second day of uprising, they cut off the internet because they, as argument, they don't want a race war to happen among the different ethnic groups, but it, it's just you know, one of their, you know, assets to to close West Papua for the international audience, international community, for the uh, violence they use against indigenous West Papuans. That's, you know, we know it from the first place. And it is happening. These video, video footages are getting out that Indonesian security forces are shooting at students um, uh, uh, in West Papua, uh, attacking villages, burning villages. So... So this is, and at the same time, they are operating a cyber war against, you know, uh, uh, West Papuan platforms uh, uh, across uh, the world. So, yeah, they want to, you know, stop the truth getting out of West Papua, but they cannot succeed, succeed in it because we got mobile phones and these footages will come, come to us anyway. And that's what's happening right now. And these crackdowns, they've affected your family quite personally, haven't they? Yes, absolutely. My father's Arnold Up. He was an anthropologist and a man who loved to make music. And he was put in prison because his music inspired a lot of West Papuans. And it, his music went about the importance of our culture, about 
identity and the desire of the indigenous Papuans to live in a free country. And, you know, and Indonesia saw, saw that as threat, so they put him in prison and four months before my birth, uh, they assassinated him. And that was the reason I fled in the first place to a refugee camp just across the border in Papua New Guinea. And from there we fled with my family to the Netherlands where I grew up. And understanding what happened to my father, knowing that he, his story is just uh, uh, at this time one of the 500,000 uh, stories of Papuans who have been killed by the Indonesian forces. So that, that transformed me to the person I become. His death uh, inspires me every day. And what he did was just um, a man who loves uh, his country, who loves his people, who loves his culture. And, you know, Indonesia didn't allow him to be the man, a free man in his own country. So where do you see this going? What is the next step for the West Papuan movement? I'm, I'm very confident that, you know, this sentiment uh, in the first place will never disappear. Even when the rest is going back, when, you know, the troops are, are gone from West Papua, the sentiment will always be there. So the, the, the messages I got is that this momentum is still there. Its protests are still going on. And people are finding out what we what we are going to do now from this point. And I think the uprising will continue to go. And we will lobby uh, all the activists across, across different countries in the world, uh, the United Liberation Movement. We would all do a part to make sure the UN intervene now in West Papua and make sure um, uh, observers, you know, make report of what is happening there. And at the same time, the independence movement, the Free West Papua campaign and all the solidarity groups will campaign for the right of self-determination. And it is very clear that all the indigenous West Papuans in West Papua, all these protests are showing, you know, uh, during the protest that one thing is, what, the one thing they want is a referendum. You know, knowing we live without freedom, in full oppression, with very little resources, we created this change and put Jakarta in a lockdown. You know, that, that gives us a lot of confidence. Imagine what you can do in, 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 a, independent, in a country like the Netherlands, uh, UK, Australia. And that is what I'm educating students. Look what we have realized in just five years time in this country without freedom, with very little resources. Imagine what we can do here in the Netherlands. That's what I'm saying. And it makes them really thinking, you know. So, so that's, that's the confidence we have and the trust that, you know, what we are doing is just telling, telling the truth. And we have international law on our side. So we, don't, we are not afraid for anybody. We just want to tell the story. Our cause is about, about justice, it's about freedom, it's about dignity. And that is what is hurting Jakarta and all its friends. We're going to write history, for sure. You can, you can count me on that. So let's turn away from Papa for a moment and focus about 900 kilometers to the southwest, to the island of Timor. In 1975, the people of East Timor, a sovereign UN-recognized country today, declared their independence from Indonesia. And in response, the Jakarta government cracked down heavily, eventually killing huge percentages of the population. Their story and the West Papuan story have huge parallels. So we thought we would bring in our second guest. Part two, a pebble in the shoe. When you first see it, it, it doesn't make a huge impression on you, except you're right by the sea. And, and then, then you go into Dili and you see there are a few old Portuguese era buildings, which are quite lovely, um, but it's a, it, it's a small downtown and kind of dusty. And you just realize you're in the middle of this, this incredibly, this place with this incredibly layered history. It has this way of, of grabbing your heart. Uh, it really does. Janet Steele, 
is the director of the Institute for Public Diplomacy and Global Communication, as well as being a professor of media and public affairs. She frequently worked from East Timor and has published a number of amazing papers about the Indonesian crackdown of the East Timorese independence movement. Ethnically, they're just different. And um, also there's an awful lot of Portuguese blood in Timor that uh, it was a Timor was a Portuguese colony, colony until 1975, and um, it's interesting. People look different. There, there are some people who look strikingly Portuguese, and uh, it's quite interesting. Um, Timorese can tell definitely if you're from Java. In fact, the the word for foreigner is Malai. That means non non Timorese. What about the difference between East and West Timor? West Timor was a was a Dutch colony, and so it's interesting. I've only been to Kupang once, and so I'm not a big expert on it. But you could see the buildings are different, and and uh, that was the original reason. I mean, the 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 division between East and West Timor were because of one was a colony of the Dutch and one was a colony of, of the Portuguese. And so in in West Timor now they they've been they have been Indonesian since independence. And so um, people there speak Indonesian, and, and actually I think they speak Tetum too. But um, there there are ethnic similarities of course but the 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 fact of colonization by a different country made a big difference so let's take it right back what prompted the east timorese to go for an independence movement well at that point there um you know there was a revolution in portugal and portugal got rid of its colonies and um so the the east timor declared its independence back in 1975 um and nine days later the Indonesians invaded, and and the Indonesians invaded with the support of both your government and my government. That this was the Cold War, and there was concern that East Timor would fall in the hands of the communists, and and so um, Indonesia invaded, and um, and then declared it to be an Indonesian province, and. The Timorese were not happy about that, and then there was an ongoing guerrilla war. Um, well, really, up until up until the referendum. And how did people feel at the time? You know, how were the East Timorese reacting to this? From the perspective of Indonesians at the time, under the Suharto government, they would say, "Well, Indonesia, yes, occupied East Timor, but we brought development, we built roads." I think supposedly there was only one paved road before Indonesia invaded, and they brought libraries and they built things. Now that would be the Indonesian perspective, um, and and the and I think a lot of ordinary Indonesians would have believed that, partly because Indonesian media was controlled and access to East Timor was very limited, and the official government line was, we are bringing development to our Timorese brothers. From the Timorese perspective, this was a brutal occupation, and that they had declared independence, and um, they were being occupied by a foreign power, and the military control was very, very severe, and um, it it was it was difficult to be a Timorese, and uh, they didn't want to be part of Indonesia, and tens of thousands of people were killed either by the military in the guerrilla war or just from you know, just sort of as collateral damage. So it was a, it, you know, practically every Timorese family uh, lost people during the occupation. So it's, it was a, it was a bad time. And why do you think the Indonesians were so keen to hold on to it? You know, why waste so much blood and treasure on this? 
Well, I think um, I think resources. It, um, it uh, I guess there was the discovery of oil in the Timor Gap um, in the 70s. Um, uh, but I think also just this sense of national pride and sort of um, covering the entire Indonesian archipelago, that uh, it just seems sort of natural to the Indonesians that why should there be this one country in the archipelago which was not part of it? So taking it forward through 16 years of occupation to 1991, tensions have been rising on the island and things were coming to a bit of a head. And then Santa Cruz happened. Can you elaborate on that? It started with a, a memorial service for someone who'd been killed by the Indonesian military. And the, uh, there was a big service at, the, at the, one of the churches, and then there was a march to the cemetery, to the Santa Cruz Cemetery, which is a beautiful little cemetery. And it's also a beautiful little church. Um, well, it's one of those things where it was hard to tell who started it. Was it a provocation? Did somebody throw a rock? That you know, there were very different opinions about what happened. But um, the Indonesian military responded really heavily, and and people were were forced into the cemetery, and it was truly a bloodbath in the cemetery. And uh, fortunately, there were two international journalists there, and they had video recordings, and they were able to smuggle out their video recordings, and so the world knew about this. Um, of course, the military was not presenting it as the Dili massacre, not at all. And so, um, once again, I think in ordinary Indonesians didn't have a very clear picture of what was going on because of government control of the military. The estimates I've read from this period are saying that around 200,000 East Timorese were killed by the Indonesian government. Do you think that's an accurate number? I think it probably is. I mean, it's, it's again, it's astonishing. Pretty much every family you talk to will tell you about, well, they have huge families, but almost everyone lost somebody. Um, and it's, uh, it, was a, it was a real black mark against Indonesia. And I think Indonesia... Again, I just can't emphasize enough that ordinary Indonesians were not really aware of this, that they that the government line was Timorese are ungrateful, um, even though that was hardly the way that anyone in East Timor viewed it. So around this time, Indonesia falls into a deep economic crisis with huge protests breaking out all over the Indonesian archipelago against the Suharto government. This eventually leads to the end of Suharto's 31 years as president. And with him stepping down, Habibi became president. This was such a huge moment for the rest of Indonesia. But what did this mean for East Timor? Uh, Habibi, was uh, the, the new president, was under a huge amount of pressure. It was still an economic crisis. And, Timor, and East Timor was a big drain on the coffers. And it's not easy to maintain, I, I, I guess, that kind of, of, of presence to occupy people who don't want to be occupied. Uh, it was expensive. Um, I was actually in Jakarta, 1997 to 98, and I watched the rupiah, the Indonesian currency, collapse from it. When I when I went there, it was 3,000 to the dollar, and by the time I left, it was 17,000 to the dollar. So every, it just completely lost its value, and, and it was a very hard time in Indonesia, and I think, you know, I think international pressure plus just the expense of maintaining this occupation. Habibi surprised everybody by just saying if they if they want to be independent, give them their independence or let them let them have a referendum. One of his ministers, uh, Ali Alatas, who was uh, very well known, he had always described Timor, East Timor as being a pebble in the shoe, you know, just sort of this ongoing 
source of annoyance and concern and maybe it was better just to let them go you know if they want to go go but i'm not sure that anyone really thought they would vote to go that was part of it so the referendum takes place what happened next well it was astonishing it was something like um i forget the exact figure but it was something like 98.5 percent of the people who were registered to vote voted overwhelmingly the vote was for independence and i think um this was just so astonishing that immediately, I mean, I think, I think Indonesians couldn't believe that this had happened. And the first, the, their first response was, well, this is all due to outside agitation. This is all because of the Australians, because of the United Nations, that this is, that the, this, the vote was somehow rigged. And um, it was clear that that was not the case, um, uh, but there was just massive military response. And, um, you know, the, the bloodshed started almost right away. I mean, a lot of the people who had been, a lot of the Timorese who had been involved with the vote one way or the other, they were, they became targets. UN people became targets. You know, there was an international, um, the, the the vote was run by the UN or monitored by the UN. And, and, and so there were a lot of international people there, that, but the, the, the militias didn't care. Everybody was a target. And they, the, there's an Indonesian expression, booming hangus, just burned to the ground, that um, the militias just burned everything. So to try and put a stop to the bloodshed, the UN and Australia sent in huge amounts of peacekeepers just to try and put a lid on the whole situation. But what was the Indonesian response to that? Well, they weren't overly gracious about it, <laughs> that there was a huge amount of denial. And uh, then the, the UN sent in its um, transition team that helped, that helped uh, administer East Timor for two years until they became fully independent in 2002. But there was tremendous international attention on East Timor after the, after the referendum. And I think, you know, the, the horror of the, the, the militias and the response and, the, and the, the violence that there was, the world paid a lot of attention, but um, I'm not so, so sure the world is paying that much attention anymore. So in your opinion, was it worth it? I think they're better off. And I also think that if you were to ask Timorese, they would say, absolutely, it was worth it. It was worth the bloodshed. It was worth the struggle. You know, yes, there's still tremendous poverty and there's still so many problems, but they control their own destiny. So shifting back to our main focus now in West Papua, we can see the Indonesian government is willing to kill almost a third of the population of East Timor for a province they considered a pebble in the shoe. What would they be willing to do to hold on to a province that contains most of their mineral wealth? Part 3. Vested Interest Oh, look, I, I went there as a young person. I was, I was 19 years old. Uh, and, I, and I went to West Papua on my way home to Australia. I, I knew very little about the place uh, when I arrived, but I met this, this Dani man, a uh, man from the Highlands, who came up and started talking to me and proceeded to tell me about how his whole village had been wiped out by the Indonesian military. So, you know, I, I started asking myself the question, like, why, why didn't I know about this? Why weren't we taught about this in school? Jason McLeod is an educator, organiser and researcher who taught community development and politics at the University of Queensland and now teaches civil resistance training and education for people in non-democracies at the University of Sydney. He is also the author of Medeca and the Morningstar, all about the West Papua movement. You know, they, they just feel as if 
there, certainly from what I hear again and again in my 30 years of going back and forth to the place, that you know they, they feel like they're not even treated as if they were half animals. Um, so this, you know, this feeling that they're completely disregarded um, and not only not valued, but that their their right to to life to be safe is just not respected at the most fundamental level. So, what separates a West Papuan from an Indonesian? Yeah, look, they're totally different people. Um, they are, you know, differ racially. So, you know, Papuans, uh, you know, black skin and curly hair, and you know, I. I, I often travel from West Papua to Indonesia with my Papuan friends and Indonesians will go up to them and, you know, speak in broken English assuming they're from Africa or somewhere. So that they look completely differently and, you know, geographically it's very separate uh, from Indonesia. West Papua is the western half of the island of New Guinea. You know, it's on the the western rim of the Pacific, um, whereas Indonesia's in Asia. You know, it's a it's a completely different place. It's it's over, you know, something like three four thousand kilometres uh, from Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia. So, can you then explain why West Papua is even part of Indonesia in the first place? There was a whole series of things that happened, but sort of late on in the piece. Uh, the US government and the Australian government stepped in and they brokered an agreement in 62 um, called the New York Agreement and essentially that said that uh, there would be some kind of referendum, uh, you know, some sort of act of universal suffrage uh, in West Papua. Now, a couple of things about that. First of all, that no West Papuans were present when that agreement was made. What did happen was the Indonesian military went round and hand-picked a number of West Papuans, a total of 120, sorry, 1,026 were selected. 1,022 ended up participating in, uh, I think there was something like uh, nine different locations and in each location what happened was essentially the same you know an Indonesian general gave a few speeches uh, then asked who wanted to be part of Indonesia and you know not not surprisingly in a in a situation that involved aerial bombardment and arrests and disappearances uh, all the Papuans in the room you know raised their hand um, 0.0, less than 0.01% of the population being involved. Um, and then the UN rubber stamped it and walked away. So, yeah, the Papuans just feel like they've never freely been able to choose whether they want to be part of Indonesia or not. And my guess would be that this wasn't a secret ballot. No, there was no secret ballot. So there was literally a big room and it was raise your hand. Now I've I've spoken with some of the the old people um, who were forced to participate, and every single one have said that they were f- basically forced at gunpoint um, 
to to go along with this and whilst this was happening there you know friends were being imprisoned or disappeared in, in Panii where um, you know I've spent a fair bit of time the villages there were bombed um, by the Indonesian military and why is the Indonesian government so desperate to hold on to West Papua it's rich it is so resource wealthy you know there's oil gas the world's largest golden uh world's largest open pit mine the freeport mcmurran uh copper and gold mine is there so that that's a key reason you know it's driven by by economics and by greed and these big international companies that do mining work out of West Papua, do you think they are more leaning towards the Indonesian government or leaning towards a West Papua independence movement? Uh, so in one sense, you know, I think these companies are watching things very, very carefully. Um, and some, are, you know, have made overtures uh, to, to the movement. But they're also very much under the thumb of the Indonesian military. So in the case of Freeport, um, the gold and copper mine, you have the Indonesian military and the police providing security um, and, you know, often threatening uh, these mining companies and their employees uh, as well. So, yeah, I think they're they're playing a very, very difficult game. So far, they've mostly supported the Indonesian government. Um, but who knows, that that could change. How does this differentiate from previous revolts? I mean, what is the Indonesian government doing to crack down that's different to previous times? They're, they're using helicopters, they're strafing villages, they're, um, there's been allegations of phosphorus, uh, white phosphorus being used, um, but you know they're using a range of incendiary devices, um, and you've, there's been over 180 civilian deaths um, so far as a result. A lot of people have fled into the forest, where they're you know exposed to cold and hunger. You're also seeing police uh, operations and extrajudicial killings um, from both ordinary police the paramilitary police and also the counterinsurgency police, which was a unit called Detachment 88, set up by the Australian and the US government. But most distressingly, um, to my mind, what we've seen in uh, this month in September and also in August uh, is militia uh, appearing on the ground. So. You're, and these are militia that are coordinated by the Indonesian police and military, often by the special forces. And their various groups, Barisan Meraputi, the Red and White Defenders Front, uh, Lamari is another one, uh, Bansa is, is another one, a, a militia group that's been uh, around since 65. And these are Indonesian civilians um, with often with close ties to um, the Indonesian police and military and they're armed with uh, often with machetes and clubs uh, you know and very other various other household uh, tools and they are attacking and in a number of incidences have uh, killed West Papuans in the last couple of weeks. 
and what are the West Papuans doing to fight back? So this is a really important point, uh, and I want to make this really clear to your listeners. In in the last uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen 42 as of today. Uh, we've seen 42 West Papuans killed. Uh, they've been uh, mostly shot dead, uh, or they've been attacked with machetes by militia, and we've only seen two Indonesians killed and that was a, a military officer that was shot with the bow and arrow in Deye uh, in the highlands uh, in Panii and we allegedly and this is yet to be confirmed allegedly a, shoulder, a soldier Indonesian soldier was killed uh, in Jayapura a couple of days ago no Indonesian civilians have been harmed or attacked by West Papuans. So the violence is very much one-sided uh, and it comes from the Indonesian state. Do you think it's a chance that the West Papuans might decide to just unite with Papua New Guinea rather than seek independence? Uh, some West Papuans and Papua New Guineans talk about it being one country. I don't think um, you know it's being seriously discussed at the moment, but certainly as the violence increases and as the relationships between people in the east and west uh, deepen, the Papua New Guinean government is coming under much more pressure to speak out about West Papua and certainly the new new Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, James Marape, uh, has been much more vocal than his predecessor, Peter O'Neill. So the Jakarta government has been taking part in a very large resettlement program, moving lots of people from Bali and Java and other populated parts of Indonesia into West Papua. Uh, why do you think they're doing that? Yeah, look, it's it's basically a, a strategy of occupation. Um, you know, they are trying to displace the West Papuans. They're trying to gain control of their land and resources. Back in '69, uh, when the act, what the Papuans call the Act of No Choice, took place, the population on both sides of the island was roughly the same. Now you've got a, a population of around about seven million Melanesians in Papua New Guinea, and round about one and a half um, Melanesians in West Papua. Uh, so, yeah, a huge population difference. And, you know, and uh, you've got to ask, well, why, why is that happening? And how far do you think the Indonesian government is willing to go to contain this? I have no doubt that they will do everything possible. Uh, the risk of large-scale mass atrocities is a real risk. You are seeing all the signals... Uh, that you see before genocide. You know, the dehumanising uh, of whole population groups, the indiscriminate killings, the arming and organising of civilian militia. Yeah, Indonesia was, will, will be willing to do whatever they can, and that's why it's absolutely essential that the international community steps in uh, to restrain the Indonesian government and really support those moderates within the Indonesian government to bring uh, the hard the hard right the ultra nationalists 
um, under control. You've got to remember it's in their interests to keep West Papua under their rule because they are getting incredibly rich from it. Um, just to give you one small example, in the uh, I saw some documents um, a couple of years ago uh, that the police, uh, the lunch bill for the local police in Timica, where the Freeport mine is, uh, you know, amounted to 10 million US dollars. Uh, so, you know, there's uh, huge extortion, um, you know, and other forms of, you know, vested economic interests going on. You have local police and military controlling drugs, uh, trade in illegal wildlife, prostitution rings, um, you know, all, all, all sorts of things like that turning overseas now and looking towards the US, do you think the US government has a stake one way or the other in this? Certainly when, you know, Freeport's an interesting example. You've got many ex-CIA uh, directors that sit on their board and, you know, they're very, very close to, um, you know, the, the political centre. Uh, I think they're keeping a very, very close eye on what unfolds in West Papua. The Freeport mine and uh, the other resources is very, very important to the US. The US has been involved in West Papua, um, you know, for, for a long, long time. Um, and, you know, you have to remember too, the other player in all of this is China. I mean, China's really, uh, you know, going on a Pacific of offensive. So, you know, we're living in a multipolar world now, uh, which makes things very, very, very interesting. And um, who knows how that could play out in relation to West Papua. And what is Australia's role in all of this? Australia's got some very, Australian government's got some very difficult questions to ask itself. It is currently training uh, the Indonesian police uh, at the uh, Joint Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation in Samarang, in Java. Uh, and the Indonesian police are the major perpetrators uh, of violence, including extrajudicial killings in West Papua. Uh, that needs to change, and in order for that to change, the Australian government basically needs to rip up the Lombok Treaty. And for our listeners, can you explain what the Lombok Treaty is? Uh, the Lombok Treaty is an agreement signed between the Indonesian and Australian governments on the island of Lombok, a, a small island next to Bali. And essentially it is a demand uh, by the Indonesian government that the Australian government does not support uh, and does not speak about um, West Papua. And what do we get from this treaty? Nothing. It was really a case of putting trade interests uh, above the lives of ordinary people um, and it's time to rip it up. So after independence, who do you think the Indonesian government will turn towards? Who will be its friends in the brand new world of West Papua? I, you know, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific also, and they'll be looking to Australia and New Zealand. Um, you know, eventually things will settle down with Indonesia and you'll see trade with, with Indonesia, you know, if you take the long view. Uh, as well, just which is what's happening, you know, now with uh, East Timor. Um, you know, and to go back to my earlier comment, the West Papuans don't hate Indonesians. They're they're against the colonial occupation by the Indonesian state. Um, so yeah, you will start to see 
Uh, so those relationships with Indonesia, I think, you know, um, are significant. And, you know, now's the time just to start talking about our neighbours and what's going on. Uh, a place that really is only swimming and walking distance from Australia's northernmost boundary in the Torres Strait Islands. West Papua, a nation only swimming distance from Australia, is right now begging for us to help them against a government that routinely shoots them with helicopters, calls them dogs, and arms and trains local militias to terrorise them. All of this is going on just north of Darwin, and for some reason we refuse to talk about it. We saw what the Indonesian government were willing to do to hold on to East Timor, and I worry to think what they might be willing to do to hold on to a much more valuable West Papua. Thank you so much for tuning into this fortnight's program. We'll be back next fortnight with a domestically focused episode. If you like the show, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Red Line Pod, and feel free to send us a message there as we post lots of articles and maps about the fortnight's topic there to help you. And a huge thank you to all of our guests today. If you want to follow Rucky Up, you can follow him on Twitter at at Rucky underscore up underscore, or you can follow the Free West Papa Movement on Twitter. And if you want to follow Janet Steele's fantastic work, you can find her on Twitter at Janet underscore Steele. And as for Jason, uh, you can check out Jason McLeod's book, Modeca and the Morning Star. Uh, you can find that on most good retailers. And I suggest you give it a listen as it was the basis for most of the research on this episode. If you want to support the show, you can visit our Patreon. This show is completely self-funded and this allows us to go after stories that corporate media wouldn't be allowed to. Every dollar you donate goes towards paying our fantastic crew, hiring on more people and getting this show to as many people as we can. There are plenty of rewards on Patreon and it would mean the world to us for you to be part of the show. Thank you so much for listening. And as I say in West Papua, look him, you, bye him.